Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. Today we're going to be doing something slightly different. Um, We're reviewing... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino, the novel that was brought out earlier this year in in connection to the movie that came out the year before. To discuss the novel with me, I'm going to be talking to Ed Potton from The Times and Damon Wise, a freelance writer whose work has appeared everywhere and who is also an expert on Charles Manson and and Quentin Tarantino. Uh, He's definitely... The person who's interviewed him more than anybody else uh, on this podcast, let's say that. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. And if you like the episode, but only if you like the episode, remember to like it, subscribe it, and tell all your friends. Before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. says it all yeah well i mean i, I do I, I do still remember the press conference at can when um tarantino was asked a question about margot robbie's character by i think it was a journalist from the new york times um who was talking about the fact you had this kind of oscar nominated actress and you know why was she so underused blah 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 and i do still remember tarantino's look and and sort of i reject that hypothesis <laughs> was was his was his sort of rasped reply, um, 
So, yeah, but I mean, I felt, I don't know about with, about YouTube, but I felt with this book, he was almost trolling the, 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 the kind of people who would make that kind of criticism of his work because he kind of amps up all the things that people found problematic with the original film and kind of doubles down on a lot of them, especially Brad Pitt's character. Absolutely. The Brad, I think the Brad Pitt character uh, is all the ambivalence just goes out the window and it says, nope, nope, he kills his wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was this kind of, you know, did he or didn't he kill his wife in the film? Whereas you're left in little doubt that he did in this. And for good measure, Tarantino throws in, I think, three other murders and also casually mentions that he got into kind of dog fighting and considered becoming a pimp and all this stuff. So it's almost <laughs> like he's daring you to like this character, which you still do uh, on, on some level, at least, I think. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I did read an article really shortly after the film was released saying that the Brad Pitt character is entirely problematizing you know, our romance for this sort of like, you know, he's he, just because he takes his shirt off, we're willing to forgive him anything. You know, he's fixing an antenna on the roof of the house and we're willing to go, yeah, okay, fair enough. Maybe you <laughs> killed your wife, maybe you didn't, but look at your six pack and, and you know, uh, we'll he's, let you get away with it. He's using him in, in, a, in, a, in a different but kind of equally clever way as, as Fincher used him in Fight Club, isn't he? You know, you've got Brad Pitt, this kind of paragon of manly beauty, and he's kind of testing how far you can push that. You know, I mean, you know, we saw he Pitt came back from, you know, he had all this kind of messy divorce with Angelina Jolie, and it looked for a while like he might be cancelled, and and, and it, but it turns out he was actually okay and seemed to have got out of that, and 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 it was almost like people wanted to kind of still keep on liking Brad, didn't they? So he and Tarantino mm. definitely plays with that. Quite, quite cleverly, I think. What do you think, Damo? Well, also, this, this, the idea that the, the nice movie star is quite a recent construction, really. Because, you know, when you can, if, if we were to look into the backstories of, of half the movie, the leading men before like 1970, you'd find all sorts of skeletons in their closets, like drink problems, wife beating, oh, you know, all yeah. sorts of. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting look at the star system. Like, we you know how, and I know that I know Cliff Booth is not necessarily a star, but he's the kind of next, you know, he's, he's the sort of wingman or the Batman to, you know, to the um, as in the, not not the winged Batman, but you know, the the, <laughs> the, the, the sort of the serviceman, you know, that, that serves the 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 ruling class, so to speak. So yeah, I do like the fact that you know, I think I think if anything, he's probably overegged the pudding by trying to get those sorts of backstories in. You you just you just know that half of those things are real stories that belong to like I don't know who did he have a big fight with on Reservoir Dogs? Forget the actor. Um, Eddie Bunker. Eddie Bunker. No, 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 no. The um, oh, the other guy. Madison. No, the old, the old, old, hang on a second. Uh, I think he died soon after, actually. Lawrence uh, something? Lawrence Peony. Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. There's no idea around this one. <laughs> the sound of a man desperately Googling information. You can edit this to make it look like Damo had this at his fingertips, can't no, you? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll edit my voice coming in with his answer. <laughs> Reader. <laughs> Reader, it was Lawrence Tierney, but no, I think I think Tarantino I don't pretty much had a stand-up fist fight with him over things. He was just refused refused to do what he was told, and you know after they, you know. Um, so I think there's a sort of a, a, a quite a sort of uh, I wouldn't say a romanticization, but a certain respect for the uh, for the ways of the old way, the, the old way of doing things. These people that just said no when they didn't want to do it, 
Um, so I'd say it's, it's, we're kind of, when we think of a movie star now, we think of Tom Hanks and him being really nice and giving typewriters to charity. But, you know, I'm sure, you know, when you think of actors like Lawrence Harvey, who really weren't very popular at all. Uh, with yeah, other I mean, actors. Now, let's face it, someone like Cliff Booth, had they existed in, in today's society, would be, would be cancelled in a millisecond, wouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's got all this stuff. But yet at the same time, Tarantino um, gives him this sort of interior life as, a, as an art movie uh, buff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have all these pages and pages dedicated to, you know, what, what he thinks about Bergman and, and, you know, his top five Kurosawa movies, and which is clearly Tarantino kind of, yeah. you know, uh, venting his, his, his own opinions and, and just through the bizarre kind of mouthpiece of this otherwise gruff stuntman. Actually, a very good point he makes. There's, there's, a, kind of, there's a good British documentary called British Bulldogs about the British stuntman. Uh, John Spy directed it. Um, and it basically says they came out of the army, these people, because no one else was stupid enough to jump off a building. And so that's why you end up, you know, it makes sense that Cliff was in the army. And if he was in the army, what wars would he have been in? He'd have been in Korea. He'd have been, you know, in some pretty nasty skirmishes. So there, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a university for stuntmen, you know, prior to 1968. Um, I think that was a really interesting point that, you know, he... Uh, and this, you know, particularly in, in the UK, it was retired servicemen who had come out of the war and had nothing else to do. And they were just hard cases that would do whatever they were, you know, set themselves on fire, all sorts. Jackie Chan coming out of the Chinese opera and, uh, and you know, basically agreeing to fall 50 feet in, onto cardboard boxes because nobody else would do it. And yeah, got the job like that. I also like the idea of Cliff as being a ringer which is kind of a, a stuntman who's not on the regular movie books, who could be brought in to teach yeah, yeah, yeah. A, an objectionable star a lesson um, by accidentally on purpose hitting him full in the face or whatever, and not having to deal with the flack because he's, he's not on the books and they won't see him again. Um, that, that was a lovely little touch. You can see that, you know, it's one of those many things that Tarantino is itching to kind of get somewhere into one of his stories and obviously didn't have room to do it in the, in the movie, so can do it here. To go back a little bit, your first reactions to the movie, and then what were your reactions to the movie and the book when you sort of grabbed the book and read through it? Did it did did it raise the movie in your estimation? Did it provide you with different stuff, or, or is it sort of like a totally different thing? Damo, do you want to go first? Well, um, it's funny because when I when I got to the to page one hundred, which is the end of the movie, I thought, oh great, this is this is going to be something else because uh, I spent a day on set of that movie on the is uh, the scene where Brad Pitt goes home to his dog he goes back to his little and there's more of that there's, there's, that scene was a lot longer he has a little moment where he goes on his roof and he goes and watches a, a Raquel Welsh movie has a bit more interaction with the dog um that's not in the novel but um I thought it was interesting what was interesting about the novel was it was it then played out much more like the film that he was explaining to me that he was making because he kept saying it's set over two days in February 1969 of course, the Manson killings were in, 19, in in August, so it was six months later, seven months later, and I just couldn't figure out how the Manson thing fitted in. And to be honest, it doesn't really fit in. It, it is kind of, you, you know, it, if it didn't happen at the end, you wouldn't really necessarily notice it. You might feel a little bit shortchanged, but the film isn't driving you towards that thing. It's only your knowledge of what happened on that day that makes you think there's something going to happen in the last reel. So I was really interested. So I thought it was really interesting. This, I think this is closer, the novel is closer to the film that he was making in his head, which wouldn't have all the Tarantino elements that you'd expect, like, you know, violence and tension. And there, there is some of those things, but they're not really in the, you know, not usual, not used in the usual genre way. Like the most, I suppose the scariest part really is when, when 
uh, Cliff goes to, goes to Spartan Ranch and we don't know what's going to happen to him there. But even then, it's only because we know what the Manson family were capable of in that time. Which is, which is arguably the scariest part in the movie as well. Yeah. As I say, I just think, you know, you could, you could probably get rid of that last 10 minutes. I mean, you know, I, 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 don't think the, I don't think the ending of the book would necessarily work on film, and he knows that. But I just think it could have worked. It could have been an interesting way for him to do something different um, and just end and just end with a with a quiet scene of of, of you know contemplation or you know it's like it's not it's it, I thought that's that in the chapter the final chapter of the of the book I think really works but whether his his fan base would accept that I don't know but as I say my, my main point is that I think the book is what he was trying to make a very digressive freewheeling day in the life hangout movie which kind of because of contractual requirements had that kind of big splashy ending, which he obviously cared so, not not little for, but so he was prepared to chuck it out when he came to writing the novel, just because he didn't want to gear the whole book towards it, because it's not that much of a part of the story. Well, so that's really interesting, because I, I have a friend who watched the film and, and said, I, I loved it right up until that last point, and that last scene was, if, they, if they'd finished it, if they'd finished it without the, the coda, if you like, the last chapter, I, you know, the, he would have thought it was the best movie Tarantino had ever made. I, I disagree with that. I feel the I, I want the flamethrower moment. <laughs> I am that fan base, I guess. You love that flamethrower bit, didn't you? I remember seeing you after watching it in Cannes and you were just so delighted with that moment. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, it was that line. It was the line. It wasn't so much that moment. It was when he said, I still had the flamethrower uh, fully operational. Thank God. That was the, the line that, that killed me. You know, I just thought DiCaprio can do comedy so, so well. Well, what about the same question to you, Ed, then? That, you know, your sort of feelings about the movie and, and, and the feelings about your the relationship with the movie and the novel. Well, I was really delighted once I got stuck into the novel to realise that he wasn't just going to rehash the emotional peaks from the movie. Now, it's really interesting what Damo was saying about about maybe that was closer to what he wanted to do. But certainly, he he was he. I mean, for me, I mean, the two of the biggest uh, kind of peaks in watching the movie were um, Sharon Tate, played by Margot Robbie's joyous reaction to seeing her pratfall on screen. You know, reduce this whole cinema to laughter. I thought that that was a real kind of key moment to me, and also kind of gave a lie to people who said that her character was kind of in the background because I thought that was that was a really important scene, even though she didn't have any dialogue in it. Um, and the other one was the one you were talking about, the, the bloody finale with the flamethrower. These two scenes were both dispensed with. I mean, they were emotional peaks in, in the original film. Here, they're just little speed bumps, really. He he, he just throws them away. He, he, he kind of, he, 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 he sort of almost sort of approaches them in parentheses. Um, and, 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 he, and, he, and, he, and he's much more interested in, in finding peaks elsewhere, which I thought was really brave and 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 it's sort of you know it's it's not what typically what what a, a novelization would have done so he's he's clearly kind of pushing the parameters a bit and and demo mentioned that the kind of new finale we get we get in the book which i thought was amazing and i, I couldn't help but think about how how it would have worked on film where you've got um DiCaprio's character on on the phone to his eight-year-old uh, co-star, and they're going through the scene. And obviously, the eight-year-old co-star is is a, is a is a yet another mouthpiece for Tarantino. You know, mm -hmm. she's the most precocious eight-year-old you've ever heard, and and speaks in Tarantino-like cadences. But it works so well, just the chemistry between them. Um, 
there, there's a few little sort of iffy bits again Tarantino trolling his audience about the kind of slightly inappropriate um, relationship between a middle-aged yes. man and an eight-year-old girl <laughs> uh, which is slightly queasy but again you can see it's him pushing people's buttons and 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 getting a reaction um but yeah no i just love the way that he completely reframed the film and and as, as demo says you have that you he he mentions the finale but only on sort of page 100 so he, he's completely you know he's famed for reordering things and he's done that in in the book and i love that actually one thing ahead, i also David. say is that he kept saying to me uh, i've not heard him say this ever since well, on that particular day, this was in uh, um, Halloween. It was week before Halloween. It was like twenty eighteen, I think it was. He kept saying, "I'm making a Claude um, a Claude Lelouch movie. I'm making a Claude Lelouch movie." Uh, and he specifically mentioned a film called Le Voyou, which is not at all like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I just thought it was interesting that as soon as the film came out, he didn't really say that ever again. Um, because I just don't think, you know, yeah. And actually, Claude, Claude Lelouch did have a film in Cannes that year. And he, I think he did go to see it. Oh, did he? But yeah, well, I, did, I, feel, I felt a little bit led up the garden path because I kept telling people, oh, he's making this Claude Lelouch kind of film. And then, of course, he, you know, he sort of stopped mentioning it. Um, but there is that sort of, um, I think it's more of a kind of, a, 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 in a funny way, more of a Jacques Demy film because it is, I think, it's, uh, which film is it? Not, not the singing, dancing ones, but something like um, Model Shop. Right. Me. So that's that's where that's where you get all that sort of that's that idea of LA. You know, that's where you get all the the oil sort of what they call drills that sort of that, that were just all you know that weren't there that he shipped in to make the scene more exotic. Sure. Uh, that's where where Brad where, where Cliff lives. There's that looks very much like a scene from Model Shop. Um, so yeah, the, it's interesting the things he was going for and not necessarily things that the fans would have got would have would have gone out for if they'd known that's what he was making. But uh, it, I, does the loose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I heard, I heard, I don't know who I heard this from. It might have been one of you guys, but I heard that they were very nervous before the premiere. They really didn't know which way it was going to go. Um, meaning the creative team, the producers, and Tarantino himself. There was a real sense of they didn't know how it was going to land at all. And then they were sort of delighted with the reaction, which was, you know, a, apart from several sort of voices out of the choir was was pretty much positive no they were pretty confident i i, I oh, okay I, okay i'll be i went they did a press day in may uh, and they showed they showed they showed a, a long sizzle reel that seemed to be yeah they seemed pretty confident then um because it had only just been announced i think i think while i was there it was announced that it was in it was in can i think it was literally like the day it was like the may the first in, in 20 28 no it was 2019 was the press day in LA, and I think that day or the day before, it was announced as a as a late entry to Cannes. So I think, I think they wouldn't have put it into Cannes if they'd have been nervous, because he, I mean, I mean, he was certainly pretty pleased with it. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. And I don't think it's changed because he did change. He did change in Glorious Bastards quite substantially. There was a whole scene that he he inserted after Cannes. He tightened up the beginning because he says he doesn't, but he does do that. Um, but as far as I'm aware, that nothing's changed with. As you know, if anything, there was. I think they might have added a little bit of Great Escape. I think yeah, things that weren't ready. Yeah, because the, the Great Escape footage wasn't ready, and they added the red, the red apples advert at the end. Because I saw it at Cannes, and then I saw it at Locarno, and I remember thinking, "Hang on a minute!" There were a couple of little things that were that that I had that weren't in the the Cannes version. Yeah, so. there was. I think I think there's a little. There's maybe there's a scene of. Sharon picking up a hitchhiker and taking her up westward. That wasn't in, but then, because also 
the weird thing is they showed us this sizzle reel which had stuff in that wasn't in the movie and there's stuff in the poster that isn't in the movie the little girl on the phone is in the poster if you look at it she's you know she's smack in the middle of the poster so there's it's the, the strangest film where so they did was, actually shoot that scene that the, 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 the book finishes I think they did i think they yeah did. that's in that's also in the trailer for the book they they, uh, they put out a, on yeah. youtube or whatever they put out a trailer for the book and it has yeah it has dialogue from that scene because it did feel incredibly cinematic. I mean, obviously, you can't yeah. help but think but think about these things in a cinematic way and and describe chapters as scenes and, and that kind of thing. But I did think, even as I was reading that, I was imagining how he would have done it, and I, I'm sure it would have been great. I mean, you know, th this this thing could kind of run and run, couldn't it? Well, I mean, there's just talk of it being a HBO or the, mm. um, you know, I think it was it, it was a hateful eight miniseries version, I think, which wasn't any longer, but it was it was only longer in the sense that each each like 40 minutes had credits on either end of it so i, I think there's definitely there's definitely a version a lot a longer much longer version because you, you keep seeing bits of it uh as, as even in that ew clip from the for the book yeah particularly as i know there's a lot longer in that scene with brad pitt when he goes back to his apartment and spends more time with his dog and he talks to talks to his dog and then he he has this scene where he um he says something about um there's this great line about raquel welsh and she said, because apparently she was in four films over that over the first weekend of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Raquel Welch appeared in four films that you could see in LA on that day. And so he has this there's a scene where Cliff Booth says, "If if Raquel Welch keeps working this rate, then maybe I'll just get tired of her. But maybe I might just get tired of her." Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I love this kind of the sort of tension between the fact that he's so fastidious with. Uh, fitting in with all the historical detail like apparently he timed exactly how long it would take Polanski and Tate to drive up Cielo yeah. Drive and all of this but then he takes you know kind of craven liberties with it as well so uh, there was the I mean there was the there was the bit in which they're they're talking about um uh, a remake of The Lady in Red directed by Quentin Tarantino yes. <laughs> which kind of it reminded me I don't know if you've read um Money by Martin Amos there's a there's a bit oh, yeah. in, in Money where there's a character called Martin Amos who kind of walks into the story, and it did very much remind me of that. And that that was famously the point at which Kingsley Amos, his father, stopped reading the book and sort of threw it across the room. <laughs> um, um, but it, but it's it's very much like that, isn't it? He he's just doing it because he can. Uh, yeah. And and there's something kind of laudable about that, just kind of that that sheer kind of hutzpah of doing it. And there's that there's also that character um, who they meet in the bar, Cliff and. Um, and Rick meet meet this this musician in the bar called Curtis. I'm going to have to read this because I didn't know what Curtis Zastupil, who was oh, in, his, yeah. who was Quinton's real life stepfather. Uh, he was a real person, and and he talks about having a son called Quinton. So it's yeah. getting so solipsistic, it's amazing. <laughs> but I just you know he does it so well. He does it with such panache. You kind of forgive him, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a period in, period in the 80s, 90s that if you didn't put yourself in your own novel, you, yes, you didn't yes. get it published. I mean, it, 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 I knew, He's still I, clinging on to that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with the, the, the word you used, the chutzpah. The, you know, I really got that with Inglorious Bastards when, he, when, you know, spoiler, he kills Hitler. And I just thought, oh, that's such a great idea. But with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I expected him to 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 do what he did. It, it didn't feel like a twist. It felt like, mm. yeah, this it doesn't make sense. I thought it'd be disappointing if they didn't, you know. Um, what did you think of the way Manson was treated? Because I know Damo, you're a bit of a uh, a Manson Manson <laughs> expert. 
I don't think it's unfair to say. I think I think it, it figures. I mean, the, who knows with that story? I've you read so many you read so many books and come back to the first one you started with, um, which is Helter Skelter, which is a load of rubbish, but it's the best, most plausible version of the, of the not plausible, the most uh, entertaining mm. of the versions the versions yet. So, um, uh, what did I think? So it. I mean, I think it does locate Manson as a character. Basically, it, it, it works well as a fiction with Manson as that character because I kind of like the fact that you know Manson's. It, it's a bit of a rat race, you know, going on in um, in Hollywood, and Manson's sort of in 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 that world. I mean, he was in that world, really. I mean, he was trying to get a record deal. Whether he was obsessed with it is another matter. I mean, this is where it all kind of the, the, this is the point in the path that people where people divide. So, if you believe that Manson really was that bothered about a a record contract that he'd been away for a few days, came back to the ranch and just sent some people to to kill some people, you know, for for whatever reason because he was so angry about not getting a a record contract that doesn't really, you know, when when in fact the two of the theories one is that there was a drug burn gone wrong which basically Tex Watson took matters into his own hands and was being sold bad acid um so had been sold some bad no actually no just been stiffed on some ecstasy I think by Wachowski because they did have uh, MDMA in their systems which is something that's not quite never very um widely publicized I mean they were quite you know quite druggy in that household I don't think apparently Sharon quite ahead of their but... time narcotically yes yeah and so uh, so there's one one room one one of the one of the theories is that they, it was a drug deal got wrong we gone wrong and they they got revenge on them. Oh wait a second, the, the people in the household like uh, um, Sharon Tate and everyone had MDMA in their system. Or it was well Frukowski who was who. Well, uh, the, 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 the rumor is that they were all sort of involved. Apart, everyone apart from Sharon was was sort of involved in some way in the narcotics industry. So right. Um, so I mean, this is just I'm just floating float this as a theory that they basically were dealing drugs or had promised to deal drugs and the drugs were not forthcoming. So Tex Watson took a lot of amphetamine and went a bit crazy. Uh, the other one, slightly more plausible to me in a funny way is because they're all crazy, is that uh, Bobby Beausoleil, their old mate, had just gone to a prison for murdering the, a sort of a Buddhist teacher down the road. And so while, while Manson was away, the girls decided, let's let's get Bobby out of prison and let's commit another murder. So everyone thinks there's there's a copycat uh, around the alibi yeah 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 so so i mean so i'm only mentioning these because these you said these are not mentioned at all in 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 tarantino's version he sticks strictly with the fact that manson was a failed musician who took revenge on uh, terry melcher even though he knew he wasn't living in that house he'd been around i mean you know he knew he wasn't there uh as in the film he goes around so i kind of think that he ma he makes a decision very very early on to stick with the perceived narrative of, of the time, which is all everyone would know. I mean, if, weirdly, actually, if it was being of the time, the immediate reaction to that case was drugs. It wasn't hippie cult leader. And it was, they didn't know who it was for about three months. In fact, even Bruce Lee was suspected, which is why I thought he might, um, that might be a hint or two in the book, but instead him, he makes him out to be a really unsportsmanlike stunt person. Or, you know. Yeah, sort of loudmouth braggart. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question really. So yes, in terms of so I do think I do think it's a very quite a reductive vision of Manson, but I think it it serves its purpose in terms of having an, you know another entertainer. Everybody's trying to make a go of it in 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 LA, and Sharon has Sharon has made it quite by almost, almost I wouldn't say almost by accident, but just almost effortlessly. So she's at the top, and everyone else is sort of like spiraling around her, and then Manson is just one of these people in the orbit trying to trying to get by because I mean you you know it's that's. In, indisputable he was trying to get by you know he was you know stealing credit cards and 
you know, whether murder was on his mind is, is, a, is a whole different thing entirely. I always wonder with Manson in terms of the book and in terms of the, the, the film as well, that he, I mean, you know, everybody, uh, well, the, the critic from the New York Times mentions about Margot Robbie not having that many lines, but Manson sort of, I mean, you know, you expect the guy turning up at the cinema like... Uh, um, who was the guy from uh, the Adrian third Brody. line? Yeah, turning <laughs> up at the cinema saying, "I'm Manson in the new film, which is all about me," and and then he's he's he gets one wave and that's it. You know, it's uh, he gets very little to do. So I mean, the film ends up not really being about Manson at well, all. And, yeah. and, and, and did you um, notice the book? The book completely dispenses with the Manson subplot a few chapters before the end, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you think there was any sort of rhyme or reason in that? Or did, did Tarantino just get bored with it? I, think, I don't think he was ever really that interested in the Manson family as the Manson family. He sort of he said to me once, it's kind of like, they were like the mildew around a, you know, like, um, like an old painting, of, you know, uh, or an old photograph. The Manson family were like the mildew creeping around the edges of, of, an, old, of an old picture of, of Los Angeles. So I think, I think in that's a, a way... Lo- that's a lovely picture. That's a lovely <laughs> Yeah, picture. And, and, it, and it really encapsulates, you know, the slightly sort of seaminess kind of, gone to seed, slightly forgotten. And that's what yeah. makes them dangerous, isn't it? The fact that they are on the margins, no one's really aware of them. That's what but, gives them their sinister aspect, doesn't it? Well, I think what attracts most of the Manson family is that they were living on Spahn Ranch. They're basically mm. living on an old, on, on the old Western studios. And that's what that's what they were reduced to, just like, you know, a little... Which again is yet, yet another sort of perfect metaphor for, you know, the passing golden age that, 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 that Rick and, and Cliff were part of. And it was only like it's only eight years before, you know. It's not like that's how quickly it all changed. You know. Yeah, and and they're Cliff, making fun of him. Cliff Booth turning up and saying, you know, oh George, are you okay, George? And it's like, well, hang on a minute, you guys haven't been around for years. What kind <laughs> no, of friends no, no, no. are you? You haven't been around for years, so yeah. Suddenly you're like, really protective. It's like yeah, yeah. <laughs> you've got what's this? Uh, I get an old person's home. I get a uh, sort of, <laughs> you know. Whereas these hippies, at least they give me. I mean, the one thing I objected to with the use of Manson, but this is a gripe I've got generally with the culture of Tarantino in particular, is that nobody ever brings up the the fact that Manson was an out-and-out neo-Nazi and racist. It's sort of like, oh, he was a hippie. Well, he was a racist. I would put racist before hippie. I would well, put yeah, neo-Nazi but, but, but Cliff, before... But Cliff, but Cliff, and, Cliff and, and Rick arguably wouldn't. They'd arguably yeah. see um, um, hippie as the, as, the, as the kind of top of the list of insults, wouldn't they? Right, right. Well, certainly, certainly, you, you, you're you're left in no uncertain terms that that yeah, being a hippie is not a thing they aspire to be. Yeah, well, that's exactly that they see hippiedom as basically the thing that's getting that's sort of brushing them aside. And yet, yeah, at the same time, you know, and, it's what they aspire to. They he wants to work with Polanski, and Polanski is definitely more of a hippie than he is 1950s. You know, madman. well, yeah, and the fact that that the yeah, the, that people like Sharon Tate are more interested in what was it, um, men who look like 12 year old boys yeah. or whatever the line was, <laughs> uh, which is. It which is very much type. not what yeah <laughs> um i mean there's an obsession with sort of various forms of paedophilia in this story isn't there i mean again you know having it having a he's have, having a a pop at polanski for obvious reasons but uh yeah again it's because it's kind of slightly squeamish territory he, he loves he loves the discomfort doesn't he what do you think of the polanski link demo it, I think this is what makes it such a, an, an LA story. You know, this you can't tell this story without him, but he's not integral to it. But neither is Manson integral to it. But they're all part of it. You know, sort of. Well, I suppose Manson's a little bit more integral to it. But I mean, it is just that. I think that's probably what's so fascinating about it. You know, just there are all these 
it links into it plugs into show business on every level so you know when sharon goes to a party she's she's not just going to any party she's going with the mamas and the papas and uh you know and you know her, her showbiz friends and you know that it, it's, it's in that town it's impossible not to be connected so everything is all you know weirdly interconnected in his, these different sort of kind of archive of show business the fact that you know she you know she she had she had a thing for you know, well steve mcqueen had a thing for her but he was probably too old for her by that point or she you know she was off doing her own other thing so just just the fact that you know in even in the even in the aftermath of sharon tate's murder you had all these all the people that just kind of got involved like you know steve mcqueen was putting up money and lee mar who's he was, people were packing people were going to their funerals with, with with guns and you know all that stuff i mean you know Polanski thought Bruce Lee had done it. You know, I mean, that's almost like a Stella Street sketch or something. It's like a comedy sketch, isn't it? Like, you know, just the fact that, you know, who who do you know? Who who killed my wife? Was it Bruce Lee of all people? You know, um, but that's how, and, and in fact, if anything, I think I think John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas was considered as a as a possible culprit at one point, you know. Um, and he was a terrible criminal in his own way, wasn't he, uh, John yes, Phillips? Yes, very, very, yes, very dark man. Yes, I mean, yeah. Again, going back to the paedophilia and... Yes, uh, I was going to say, you can't know. get away from it. Um, yeah, yeah. On, on, a, on a lighter note, one of my favourite additions in the book, which wasn't anywhere near the film, I mean, it may have been in, in a version of the film, um, was this story about Dalton when he was working with George Cukor uh, and, 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 and had the temerity to make a, 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 a suggestion to the great director and yeah. said... And, 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 and he, he actually calls cut that's right which you know no one would ever do on a george kukor set yeah and says you know and suggests that it's a good time to take a dramatic pause and then kukor says i'm reading this mr dalton it is my fervent belief that up to now your entire career has been one long dramatic <laughs> pause <laughs> and you can just totally imagine kukor saying that and that again is you know tarantino showing off how well he knows all of these these yeah. kind of personalities from yesteryear and can kind of speak in their voices but it, it works so well there's also a bit with polanski where away i mean i think it's seen through sharon tate's eyes where oh he, yes, he, yes, yes he repositions the camera so something's in the way and yes. that and everybody in the audience you know polanski says a year later when they're watching the gala look watch with the audience now and everybody in the audience shifts to see past the obstacle on the screen yes. and he's he's manipulated them it's a really straight that is a really strange moment in the film because it's 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 not it, it's not of a piece with the other cinematography it's it's a very strange choice that he's deliberately done because uh, she's on the phone and you just you can't you, you can't see her face or the phone you just see the back of her head um, but it's, it, that was... it's a little bit like the Sharon Tate scene isn't it, it, it it's realizing the power you have over an audience of people you, we, I can make all the people in this room do that at the same time, in yeah. the same way that she can make all that everyone burst into laughter by doing the pratfall. And that, that was why I thought, you know, that, that scene was the essence of the film, because it's, it's, it, it is, you know, if you strip everything away, it is, it is about the power of storytelling, isn't it? And it's also your teenage dream of if you want to be in a movie, what would you... I mean, my dream as a writer is walking into the bookshop or being on a train and seeing somebody read my book and laugh and me going, oh, what page are you on? You know, <laughs> it's the... It's the uh, you know, it's, it's, it, you want to have some kind of direct relationship with the people that you're writing for or you're, or you're performing for. Definitely, definitely. Actually, my favourite chapter is the one where... Um... Cliff meets Aldo Ray in um in a in a oh, in, yes. in a, in a hotel, and, and it's just quite a great. It would have been a great short story. Just this sort of this washed up guy, and he's not allowed Whatever to have you booze. Do, don't and, give him drink. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course he does because he can't resist it. <laughs> 
yeah he i mean uh, he's basically the id of the book isn't he i mean like yeah. you know um uh rick dalton is the ego you know he's 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 battling with himself to don't have five whiskey sours or eight whiskey <laughs> sours have two or three and cliff booth is just like whatever i you know cigarette doused in acid here we go you know <laughs> here we go he just hasn't got any and so if you you know if if you get in an argument with him you, you're probably going to get killed i mean he's a sociopath he's not got any any boundaries something we do talk about is that's in the book is um uh it's not really mentioned in the film i think i think they kind of figured it out either during i think during the film or during the publicity for it but um pete jewell who's in alias smith and jones and uh and apparently i didn't know this apparently so pete jewell killed himself after the first series and and in the uk we were we were midway through through showing that that series in america they kind of moved on and they, they just accepted the new series and ran it as normal but in the uk we were so mad about that series that we just stopped we just basically had to stop showing it uh, and it was a long time before they ever showed it again because people were just so upset about losing this 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 character. Whereas whereas in America, because it was the end, of, it was so last season, they kind of had moved on by the time he shot himself. I don't know if you remember that story. I mean, uh, but it was such a big such a big deal at the time. I mean, it was you know, and so I think that's really really interesting that he managed to work that into the book and sort of give it a bit more serious consideration about you know someone someone who's bipolar in the, in the movie industry. And we know how that panned out. So uh, do, do you think that Tarantino after this this book? I mean, because he's always talked about writing books. He's always talked about, like, I remember when he was doing Django Unchained and he was saying, I started writing a book about spaghetti westerns, which which hasn't yet appeared. Yeah. And um, and I realised, actually, instead of writing this book, I'm just going to write my own spaghetti western. Uh, and he talked about doing a graphic novel of the Kill Bill character, The Bride. Do you think that he's got, like, a box of books yes, ready to yes, go? Sir. No, I don't, I don't think it's books. A box of books. I think there are there are definitely chapters. Definitely, definitely. I know what they are. Some of them. Um, oh God. Um, you know, every now and then he'll throw out some chapter titles, and he'll do like four or five pages on stones. I think one of them was. Oh God. I'm yeah, but it was so and so's adventures in New Hollywood. Did he write anything about the Vega Brothers? Well, that was off. That was touted as a as a possible film for for years. Yeah, and years. I had it in my head that he'd written some some kind of prose on it as well, but maybe I'm making that up. Maybe he's probably got treatments and stuff, but I think he does definitely every now and then he'll sit down and write a chapter about something that happened. Really, uh, there's one I remember. It was it was, it was two names of two directors, and it said so and so and so and so's adventures in New Hollywood. Two real two real life directors. Yes, yeah, yeah. So right. I don't know if you see on the New Beverly, he's he's, he's he, these little bits and pieces pop up there, uh, like little essays on movies. So I think he just does stuff. I mean, the the key thing for me reading the book was yeah, we we all know he can do dialogue. We all know he's a font of ideas and 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 trivia and and opinions and and all of that. It was the sort of bits between the dialogue that I, I thought he was untested on, but mm. I think he writes really well. He's got a nice, clean, spare prose style. Little bit of Elmore Leonard in there, I think you can detect, um, which isn't surprising. But I, I, I'd love to read more by him. I, I think he's yeah, he's he's clearly got what it takes, and this isn't good just because we all love well, all three of us at least love the film. It's there's more to it than that. It does have literary merit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, I, and that was going to be my next question. Was basically, you know, how does he stand up as a novelist? I mean, my personal experience 
of it was, I think it was similar to yours. I, I just devoured it in a couple of days. I, I went right through it. Now that's not necessarily means it's a brilliant book that I, you know, I, I read Jack Reacher novels in, in two days and I would never sort of hold them up as. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Great works of literature, but they're really good engines you know, mm. for what they do. They, they do what they do extremely well. And I think he does what he does. There are real limitations to that. I think when the author pokes through so frequently, slightly regardless of, like an Agent Smith with people in the Matrix, you just sort and, you know, <laughs> suddenly Tarantino's face has appeared, uh, you know, in, in Sharon Tate's clothes or, or in, you know, Roman Polanski's clothes or, or wherever. Um, I think that's a weakness as a novelist. I think that there's a, you know, that's a weakness as a writer. But having said that, you know, it didn't stop me. And those points were always interesting, even, even as I recognised that the voice had sort of broken the fourth wall somewhat. And I think it's kind of impossible to separate Tarantino, the writer, from Tarantino, the ridiculous kind of ego. I mean, and, and if you did, there would be something lost, wouldn't there? But also, I mean, I thought it was quite smart that he's kind of written it in in the style of of a tie-in novel, which I thought that was pretty, <laughs> you know, a pretty hard tone to 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 affect. And, and he, he kind of nailed it in the sense that we know, you know, we know that it, it kind of it kind of doesn't take itself so seriously that it's you know it's aiming for you know, it's not like Morrissey's novel or something like that. You know, it's not something so art, you know archly self serious. I think Morrissey he, wrote a novel. Yeah, oh. it was called The Mist of the Lost or something. It had a famously <laughs> terrible sex scene in it. Um, I did not know. I read his autobiography for my sins. And, oh, uh, I couldn't get through it. I started, You're more man no than I am. There's no chapter stop. So it just sort of, it just crumbles on. And you just think, where, where, where was I? And there's nowhere to sort of, no it, it on and on and on. And there's no sort of, you know, not divided into anything. I mean, that's a, you know. I mean, I thought, you know, Morrissey but, making bad decisions. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. <laughs> but just so I mean, going back to the you know the the novel structure. I mean, he had a great structure. I I thought, yeah. how is he going to end it? And he he, he did find a structure. And um, I loved the adverts in the back of the yeah, in the back yeah. of the book and the you know the although I think the dedication to the guys who were you know um, who made it happen, including including Robert Blake who who shot his wife in the head in a parking lot of a restaurant he could have i mean again it's 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 trolling on a grand scale isn't it (laughs) grand guignol scale i would say at this point (laughs) (laughs) but you know this you know and 
it, but it's it's why I think people shouldn't take him too seriously. I mean, he is, you know, apart, apart from everything else, he's a really good comedy writer. He's really funny, and and he is taking the piss a lot of the time, isn't he? Yeah, no, I, I think he is. I think he's. I think he's hilarious and and incredibly entertaining. Do I like everything he writes on everything he says? Do I agree with it? Absolutely not. You know, no, 100% um, no. And it would be worrying if you did. Yeah. But I'm not even sure he believes everything he's writing. You know, he's he's he just knows he's an expert button pusher, isn't he? Uh, he he delights in 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 getting a rise out of people, um, as he did at that press conference. Um, although, yeah, he didn't he didn't take particularly kindly to being criticised. But um, I, I'm not <laughs> sure how how in control he is of that. I think that's sort of yeah. a bit of a reflex now. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's quite as playful uh, as, as you might be characterising there. What do you think, Damo? You know the guy. You're best buds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've seen him. Probably seen him more than most people. But just I think I think. What was a little bit offensive about that question was that he, he I think he was um, offensive to him rather was the fact that, you know, he's not doing, you know, he, it would be more offensive to give her lots of rat crazy, you know, hip, hip dialogue and be a person that she actually, you know, absolutely wasn't just to make her one of his characters. So, you know, he was doing, you know, being giving her some space, which is quite a rare thing in one of his films. And so then to say you haven't given her anything to say um, is quite sort of would have been quite, uh, you know, I think he was definitely... Um, quite insulted by that because it's just it's, it's quite a I think I think deservedly so because I, as, as I said before I do think well I, I certainly came out of that film and, and her performance was one of the things that lingered in my memory the most strongly um partly as you say because she didn't have lines you know she she did a lot with with a relative little um yeah. uh, but, it, but, but it was those scenes particularly that one in the cinema that really lived with me her dancing to the record and and her being at the party and sort of you know and you know, be um, going to the bookshop. You know, the, the... and buying and buying Roman Polanski the first edition of uh, Tess, which he then made after she died. Yes. Uh, you know, there's little things like that, which do, do they have to be subtitled for people who are stupid? You know, just sort of things, <laughs> things like that that got me. The fact that you know, but she didn't say much, so it couldn't have been a performance. Yeah, it's a little bit of the sort of uh, the way criticism sometimes feels like it's going, where we're timing things and we're dividing things, and you know, I mm. mean. Uh, a little bit like the Bechdel test that is great. It's a great tool to just think about, but it's not, it, and I don't think it was ever meant to be a formula which decides, yeah. you know, whether something is a feminist movie or not. No, I, I was just going to say your, your point about him not being completely in control of the, of the little storms he sets off, I think is totally, totally true. Um, but I do think he enjoys it, and as as you say, maybe in a kind of a self sort of in a sort of compulsive way, he's just sort of addicted to it now, isn't he? But yeah, you're right. That doesn't necessarily mean he knows where all these things are going to lead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the the worst example of that, not so much the Sharon Tate example, but was the Bruce Lee. In that, I think he misspoke a couple of times in a way that he could have easily dialed back and sort of didn't. I think when he was talking about um, comparing Bruce Lee to American stuntmen, when, when of course, Bruce Lee was American. It wasn't like he was, um, you know, he was Chinese-American, but he was still American, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that those sort of things, he could have easily went, oh, fuck it, yeah, I misspoke. I should have said this and, and that. He tends to kind of double down or lash out mm. when confronted exactly. with those situations, doesn't exactly. he? As he did in that press conference. And I think he was. I think that particular comment was on Joe Rogan, and people seem to lose their minds when they go on that. 
particular <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Uh, Joe Rogan, by the way, for our listeners might not have heard of it. It's uh, another not quite as popular podcast as this one. So I just wanted <laughs> yeah. to point that out. Slightly less stellar guests. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Elon Musk asked to come on this podcast. I said, have you, have you written a book about a film? No. So shut up. <laughs> Um, so are you looking forward to the next uh, Quentin Tarantino novel and the next Quentin Tarantino film? And what, what do you think it might be, given that he's, he's sort of said that he's, he's done? Well, the next book will be criticism. It's going to be one of his, it's going to be a compendium book of all these sort of his thoughts on, I think he seems to be specifically keen on sort of late 60s, early 70s. Maybe maybe more early, I think 1970s is a big thing for him because I, I asked him if he was, if, if uh, Once Time in Hollywood was in some way a precursor to his interest in the 70s and he sort of said no. <laughs> Completely different. Um, good, good long question. Very <laughs> short answer. But, um, but no, but he, but he did, uh, there's a Lumiere, the Lumiere Festival in, in France every, it's just about a couple of months after Cannes, like September, October. Uh, he did a two hour lecture there a few years ago on the, it's literally called 1970. And I think he did like four films, you know, about how, you know, porno chic, this sort of, you know, just the thing, the kind of things, what was happening in 1970, how the porn film nearly went mainstream, this sort of stuff. So I imagine the next book will be a sort of like a him he'll be taking the critics head on and sort of saying look you know you you know you can't make a film but i can do what you do and i think there'll be there'll be that'll be another bit of epic trolling there so i'm sure there'll be some you know character there'll be some i think there'll be some what's the word careers redefined <laughs> surely he's going to make another film though i mean surely he doesn't really he's not going yeah. to stick to that he's, he's got one, to... one more hasn't he he's got one yeah, more. Yeah, there's, yeah there is one more but i mean surely there'll be more than that I don't, I don't it's, know, I, it's I either ten. Well, it's either ten. It's either ten and out, or or retire at sixty. But but there's still the door open to television and theatre. So you know, it's only it's 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 a very it's a kind of a bit of a, there's a little. I wouldn't say it's a cheat, but there's a little bit of a, a bit of wiggle, wiggle room, room to get out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could see. Yeah, imagine if Netflix got hold of them or some, you know, or HBO. It would be yeah. It's not like he's been banging them out like Alfred Hitchcock either. I mean, as you know, he's or even Steven Soderbergh, who when he retired, uh, when when was it? Twenty years ago, he retired. Yeah, uh, has <laughs> since made how many movies? You know, I, I think, mean, I think, I think I think he will in terms of celluloid films. I think he will retire because uh, it's such, you know, it's quite a big effort to, you know. To, I kind of agree with him on the old man movies thing. You know, so you see, you know, you see some of the older huffing and puffing. I don't know, John Huston's The Dead, Cine Lumet, you know, there were some old geezers who, who still managed to make really good films. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, Brian De Palma, I'm not waiting Lynch. for his next film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Lynch made, made Mulholland Drive when he was pretty old, didn't he? I mean, yeah, I mean, I... No, I but he's just, he's, he, he's talking about career, you know, career directors, studio directors that just, you know, bosh, bosh, bosh. And then, yeah. then they. I mean, he's he's talked about this specifically in terms of, you know, the mortgage paying the mortgage films. So that's what we're talking. We're not talking about old directors being directors yeah. being old. Oh, right. just, directors, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. becoming turning you know, into making, hats. Yeah, making old man films because they've just you know they just need to pay the wives and the and the mortgage. That's it's more. Yeah, it's not just saying you're, you've. I mean, it's yeah. interesting when you talk about him doing the criticism because like he's he's been very vocal. I mean, he keeps saying things like that, but yeah, you know, Francois Truffaut wrote criticism. You know, Goddard wrote yeah. criticism. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's been the other a, way. <laughs> it's been a permeable. You know, the, that separation between critic and filmmaker doesn't yeah. really doesn't really 
hold hold water. But the um, there aren't I, many who do both, though, are there? I mean, I mean Bogdanovich. I mean, Brady used to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, there are a fair few. I think there are a fair few. I I, I don't necessarily have loads of names off the top of my head, but there aren't <laughs> there aren't many directors as high profile as him who would who would regularly do criticism. I would say. Well, regularly do criticism, no. Write about film, yes. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, Scorsese. Know, Scorsese does, Alexander it? McKendrick had a massive mm. career, Ealing Comedies, um, Sweet Smell of Success, retired and taught and wrote books for, the for you know, 20, a full 20, 30 years of his active career. Yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about sort of now, you know, or, you yeah. know, recently. It's, it, it's not something that, that you see often, is it? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the industry doesn't really encourage that, you know, because because you've got to be diplomatic if you're going to be creative and working with other people. So you don't really have those. I remember the last time I, well, I mean, Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino would be an example of where there was sort of a public falling out or Paul Thomas Anderson uh, and David Fincher had a, a big brouhaha over. He and Spike fell out over the use of the N word, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, yeah. Watching some of his earlier films is kind of slightly uncomfortable in that regard sometimes, I think, even though it wouldn't stop me from watching them. I don't know. I don't know whether you guys feel the same. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, go on, David. I mean, he, he, he's, I mean, this is, this is where he kind of, he's, he's, he's always, been, I wouldn't say he is Teflon, but he's always seen that he's felt that he's Teflon because his argument is always, that's what my characters would say. Um, but he, he did seem to of... take particular relish, particularly when it's his character in, in, yeah, in yeah, yeah, yeah. Pulp Fiction who is using the N-word, didn't he? And he I, think that, to... I think that was Spike Lee's point. I, yeah. The use of the N-word per se, it was yeah. he's making this film as an excuse as a white guy to yeah. use the N-word with Samuel, Day, Samuel L. Jackson. You know, that was the... He's living out a fantasy. But so many of, I mean, this is where I can't disentangle Tarantino from his movies, is so many of his films seem like wish fulfillment fantasies. They seem, oh, and the book, and the book too. Oh, massively, yeah. yeah. Massively, even more so maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's complete geek wish fulfillment mm -hmm. fantasies, but he's but they're but they're so compelling that mm. that, you know, why not? <laughs> Actually, I did wonder if because he did write like seven episodes of Lancer. <laughs> So that could that could be something that I mean, this is quite fascinating. The things that he says he might do and then never. I think I think he's quite. I think it was Eli Roth said it's kind of an interesting sort of way of keeping your career going by people keeping people feeding people these continuous like loop of things of things you might do when you've got no intention of ever really doing them. But it Star keeps everybody. Trek movie he was going to do and he was going to well, do. That did exist. That did exist. What well, I mean, the script existed. No, uh, he uh, maybe it was a treatment, but there was certainly a, a, a script that was there was certain, a version of a script that were, that he worked on. I think someone mentioned it recently that there were it's an R-rated um, Star Trek movie. Wow, I'd watch that. Think, yeah, I, <laughs> I would, but I think they already did it with Starship Troopers. Well, yeah, but, yeah, essentially they did, didn't they? Um, I mean, yeah, he's just got such a phenomenal store of of arcane knowledge, and it's sort of so effortlessly deployed i did an interview with um edgar wright recently for the sparks documentary and he said uh because you know he, he and quinton are, are, are mates uh they obviously share a certain he's kind of the only person he's the only person that has any connection with him at the moment i think since yes. I mean, during the lockdown edgar was the only person he was in contact with really what yeah. is that? <laughs> no, he just he just when he disappears he disappears there's no 
I don't think I think he's got. A, I think he, there was a rumor that he had an iPad. <laughs> I don't think he's got a mobile. Um, I mean, when, he, when he's not working, he, he just can't get hold of him. But wow. apart from Edgar, mysteriously can. He's got the, well, yeah. He's got so, the, so he was ta- he was gift. talking about the about the fact that you know he told Quinton, "Oh, I'm making this documentary about Sparks," and and Tarantino said, "Oh, if you interview Jane Weedlin, you got to interview anyone who makes a documentary about Sparks. Has got to interview Jane Weedlin." For those who don't know, she you know, formerly in the yeah. Go Go's had had a relationship with Russell Mayle of Sparks. And and Edgar Wright hadn't thought about this, and and then immediately, you know, pretended that he was that was all in the works. Oh yeah, of course I'm interviewing her, <laughs> and then you know immediately ran off and 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 got hold of her agent and got her in the film. And she's basically the best thing in it, other than the Sparks Brothers, you know. And that sort of just sort of casually, you know, sort yeah. drops something that's that kind of completely makes your film massively better in the, in the drop of a hat. That encyclopedic knowledge, and I mean, yeah, that, totally. That enthusiasm, I think, is is something that that we can sometimes underrate. You know, we live in such a cynical age that that enthusiasm that he definitely and honestly has for movies and can convey. You know, when I sit and watch, and, and not just movies, movies. I mean, as you see in this, I mean, TV and and music almost equally. Oh yeah, I think you know, and the, he he really digs into TV and his love for for you know. Those Western serials and 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 music as well. I mean, he can, he can go on about you know, hence the Jane Weedland stuff. So it's it's kind of like a three pronged thing, and books as well actually. So maybe four pronged. It's a lot of prongs, man. Yeah, it really is. It's more than a trident. And you, I, I, I was tantalised by what you were saying about theatre, Damo. So yeah. has he has he actually made any public statements about being interested in doing theatre? Yeah, I think I think there was talk of doing Reservoir Dogs as a play or something. Like that. I mean, he. Which would make sense. And yeah. even hateful, hateful Eight, he was sort of he was because he was going on about that being the Iceman cometh, you know. Uh, uh, no, I think he, he has talked about it. I mean, if, if people would go, wouldn't they? I mean, uh, and, yeah, because he would always get the one thing. He'd get yeah, you know, I was going to say the thing that always annoys me about when people sort of try and you know, he's. I think he's right to sort of to limit the number of films he's going to make because he's going to be very very over soon in a kind of cancelled way because there'll be a whole new wave of directors that you know it's it's that you know kill your father's kind of cycle that we see in filmmaking where he'll be he'll be I mean, the fact that we can't get any women to talk about the, the movie and talk about the book suggests that they're really that there are really people sort of weighing up and measuring his coffin to say you know it's just toxic, toxic masculinity which and he probably knows that doesn't he well that's what i'm saying i think because i at the at the premiere of of what's on in hollywood i could feel some of the stuff missing not landing because the audience was too young you know and I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm sort of too young, but I mean, I know what the references are, and you know, I mean, a lot of it goes whizzing over our heads at our age because it's from an, an, an earlier, a much earlier Hollywood. But I really felt a lot of the stuff kind of wasn't landing, and I think, I think the new generation, next few generations of film goes are not going to be into the minutiae as much as he is. I think it's going to be a bit like, you know, it might just become a bit of a hipster thing with vinyl, with you know, <laughs> uh, dial telephones, and you know, people who collect typewriters and instead of iPads, that sort of thing. I think, I think he, he might become a bit niche because he, cap- he captured something so incredibly well in 1992. Um, and he still, you know, is he's, he's the only one still doing it really. I mean, Spike Lee is probably, from, uh, how many people have had a 30 year career? I mean, there's not really that many. There's only him and Linklater in that generation. Cohen Brothers. Were, when did they first, no, they were sort of 84. They were yeah. they were an eighties kind of thing. So he was he was of the nineties. New the, 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 the saying ah okay the waves. I see of that of that specific in the waves, cohort. Except, yes, Paul so Thomas he, Anderson maybe. Yeah, he's of the later. Yeah, he came a bit. He when was he? 
that was the end of the 90s so he was almost cusp of the 2000s but to, yeah. your, to your point damo when i watched in the early 90s i watched uh, reservoir dogs and michael masden says to harvey Keitel, you know i bet you're a big lee marvin fan everyone in the audience knew who lee marvin was Mm-hmm. I knew who Harvey Keitel was. Most people knew who, who Harvey Keitel was. So there were things bouncing around there that were yeah. just available to everybody without any geekiness required. Fast forward to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I get it. It's not a content. It's not meant to be contemporary the way Reservoir Dogs was. Uh, so it is a period piece. But there'll be swathes of the audience who don't really know who Steve McQueen is. You know, there'll be there'll yeah, yeah. be people who who know who he is but have never actually sat through a film. But with him in it, you know, which which isn't true of people our age, of course, because you know, mm-hmm. the Great Escape was was mandatory every Easter. But um, you know, there are a whole bunch. Of, as as a, I'm 49 years old, there are a whole swathes of film history that I assume are a given. Mm-hmm. Uh, wrongly, you know, absolutely wrongly, they're not a given. I mean, people are, are starting with the matrix they're starting with fight club that's the first film they've taken seriously and they're going from there you know on and and, but but, but what you have now is is wikipedia and (laughs) at your fingertips so you can you can bone up on this stuff relatively easily in a way that you couldn't when we were when we were kids so it's that much easier to delve into it if you're interested so true, I, you know, true. I, I just mean, I just mean it as a given thing that I wouldn't need to go to my local library in, in the 1991. Yeah, no, but consume, there was an element yeah. of it being slightly kind of, you know, slightly kind of, um, you you had to make an effort to 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 you know to to know about this stuff in a way that you don't necessarily now. I think it, it, you can you can you can crib up on it. Uh, you know, you what you won't have a deep, but you know, you you can. You can you can you can use these things at your fingertips to kind of give you a rough rough awareness and then discover more if you want to. If you want to go and watch a, a Lee Marvin film after that, you can do it. No, um, I think I think John's right in a way is that what, what what's going to happen to Quentin is the fact that he he can no longer rely on everybody having a shared history of cinema. So, for example, you know, if I was a kid and a you know black and white film came on, I'd say who's that, and then my dad would say that's Humphrey Bogart, so I would know who Humphrey Bogart was. Because my dad, who you know, we were watching, you know, it was on television in our house. Whereas now, what are the chances of a Humphrey Bogart movie? What are the chances of a whole family sitting down to watch a Humphrey Bogart movie and everybody knowing who he is? You know, uh, so I think the fracture, the fragmentation of culture, will affect his films quite severely. I think. Well, even even to use another example, he, you know, the the opening of Reservoir Dogs, he they're talking about Madonna, and and maybe Madonna is one of the last sort of huge divas that kind of everybody knows you don't have to listen to her songs you don't have to be a fan it's that's exactly just the point if you, remade that, if you remade that scene if you read if you redid that scene with Dua Lipa how many people would say it's an iconic scene still you know would it would it still be interesting or Lady um, Gaga I mean there are yeah. people there are equivalent names you could put up there but I, I Lady Gaga would work Lady Gaga would probably work more yeah but um, mm. listen, it's guys. Still an interesting point. Yeah, it's always <laughs> it's always an interesting point when Johnny Boy's on the case. Um, <laughs> uh, listen, um, I wanted to also ask you because this is writers on film. We're doing a, a slightly unusual episode in that we're we're reviewing a book rather than uh, how many how many out of five how many how many stars out of five would you give uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino the novelization? Oh. 
we don't tend time. to give star ratings to books because <laughs> yeah. I did review it for the Times, but I, we didn't give it. Um, yeah. I would have given it at least a four. Yeah, yeah, I'd have given it a four. I think. Yeah, well, I read it. I read it in, in like two sittings. I mean, I take. Yeah. I, I often put things down and don't pick them up again. So I went. I went straight through it. So yeah, I would. I, I, I would. Yeah, give it a four or five. I, I liked it a lot. Brilliant. As I say, it kind of it does it does augment the film in in a way that I wasn't expecting it to. You see, I'd I'd have given it I'd give it a five. So Quentin, if you're listening, I gave it a five. Nemo, you're your best friend. I don't, it, <laughs> but I don't know about you know books. You know, it means that that means there can be no better book. You know, so no, it doesn't. That's not what <laughs> that's five like, star. No, no. That's, like, that's like a five star film. You've got it. We've got to give it. Well, you you can you can only give one in your lifetime. I quite like the purity of that, actually. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But but the person, if you heard about somebody else doing that, you would think, what a prat. You wouldn't you wouldn't (laughs) think, oh, what a noble. Oh, he's reserved his part because you're bound to disagree with whatever his final film is. Like you know what? I mean, I I gave the film I gave the film five stars. So maybe uh, you know, and and did I. I, I would say I didn't enjoy the book quite as much as the film, but only it's, it's only a quite close run thing. I wonder if, if you I, had to pick them. I wonder if you'd if read you the to book pick first. A... I wonder what yeah. it, what that would be like, because yeah, novelizations came out. There must be the people films. doing that yeah. in the world, mustn't there now? Yeah. In the old days, they came out here before the prints had come over from the states. So it was your way of kind of like feeling what it was like to be American and get things first, wasn't I it? Read, yeah, yeah, I read yeah. Return. I read Return of the Jedi by James Kahn. Um, I don't know if that's a real name or just Alan Dean Foster's <laughs> one of his numerous uh, pseudonyms. But I read Return of the Jedi. Uh, like months before I saw the film, and then kind of regretted it, thinking, "Yeah, oh, I was saying, what? Yeah, I can no. see why you would want to do it, but it, it, it would be a bad thing to do." Greedy, I read, greedy child. Day I read Zoltan, I read Zoltan, Hound of Dracula. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, the Halloween, Halloween novelisation was quite good. Do they do they still exist in the same way novelizations? Because I was, I, I mean, I I haven't really been actively looking for them, so I don't know. But do that? Do they still? Churn them out. Is there still a market for them? I don't think so. I don't, um... the, Terry Brooks did the Phantom Menace, uh, and he was like an established fantasy writer, and he did the Phantom Menace novelization. I remember that being a big thing. I actually think that that's what's happened is like the Star Wars, the, there's been so many novels that are sort of official novels that are part of the universe that it, it's almost become, and also Alien, there's quite a few spin-off novels. So I think spin-off novels and, um, for instance, uh, there was a Alien 3 was scripted by William Gibson. There was a, And I think they wrote that up either as a graphic novel or they've done it as an audible. They've definitely done it as an audible audiobook uh, dramatization. So I think there is, those avenues are, are being pursued, but straight novelizations i don't think there's a market for them anymore no sad sadly because that, <laughs> that they were my you know that was my introduction to literature it, my introduction to literature was actually reading a novel i thinking i was reading a novelization and i was actually reading um do android stream of electric sheep mm. and so i, I was or thinking were you <laughs> <laughs> okay let's move on uh i i asked you to choose a film book uh to recommend to our listeners uh demo what what, you want to go first so it can be anything to do with film whatsoever can't it yeah so my so my book is called nice guys don't work in hollywood 
and is The Adventures of an Esthete in the Movie Business, written by Curtis Harrington. And it's a, it's a great book. It's about basically a guy who started out making experimental films. You know, he worked with Dennis Hopper on a film called Night Tide and ended making the Colbys <laughs> on television. But um, he did. He had a sort of career in... Sort the Colbys of was like the Dynasty spin-off? Yeah, Dynasty yeah, yeah, spin-off, yeah. yeah. Right, right. It is, dynasty the, or uh, Dynasty? Well, depending on which side of the Atlantic you are. Yeah, so it's, it's it's a really really good easy read. It's just about a one man's you know growing up. It's the only book I've ever read that mentions Andre Gide and the Colbys in the same you know in the same uh, <laughs> chapters, whatever. Um, but he's just you know he 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 directed Who Slew Auntie Brew and uh, What's the Matter with Helen. So he had a kind of a good schlocky horror career. Um, very gay as well. Um, so, so lots of anecdotes, um, but just a very very easy read. I think it's out of print now, but. Um, I actually did buy my copy in in, in Hollywood, oh, um, but uh, it's just it's a really good you know it's a really good film about somebody whose career didn't really kind of take off, but he hasn't really sort of uh, you know he he takes it in his stride. You know, it's all very it's 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 it's, it's not a very it's not a bitter memoir at all. Um, as I say, his, his his he he started out as a really really weird sort of you know he was from the Kenneth Anger mold, uh, and then he just went into this complete mainstream thing, but main, maintained his his you know, integrity the whole way through. So how did you how did you sort of come across this guy? Did you like his films first and then find the book? Or I don't know. I just sort of I just sort of was aware of him. I just knew because this is, he did a film called Night Tide with um, Dennis Hopper, which is a kind of very early sort of experimental horror. Yeah, it's on um, movie, I think. Of yeah, 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 yeah. So that's sort of how he got to be known. And then he sort of I'm trying to think what. I, I, hang on. What other filmmaker has a created influential avant-garde films alongside friends like Maya Deren and Kenneth Anger? B directed critically acclaimed and culted horror films like Night Tide and Games, and C directed episodes of Charlie's Angels and Dynasty. The answer can only be Curtis Harrington. <laughs> that, that's wow, he's, he's a character from a Quentin Tarantino film. Isn't yeah, yeah, he? yeah. Like, it's from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, he would be actually. Sexy Hamlet. Uh, <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> Ed, what have you got for us? Um, so mine is probably a little bit more predictable than that. Um, it's uh, Nobody's Perfect, which is the collection of, of uh, film criticism by Anthony Lane, who I oh, just yeah. adore. He's just, I mean, I've, I don't, have either of you two ever met him? No. I, he's... I stood in a queue um, uh, in Venice and he was standing in front of me, apparently. But I, I don't think that really counts, but it's, 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 it's better than I've done. Um, no, I just love him. He, I mean, for those who don't, who don't know him, he's he's one of the film critics of the New Yorker, and he's just he's he's British. I quite write, write, rate the fact that he writes for the New Yorker, but he still lives in Cambridge, I think. Um, and he's just got the most elegant, witty uh, prose style. I mean, there, there there aren't many film critics who'd have a bit of blurb from Martin Amis on the front cover of their book, <laughs> which you know says it all. Like he's got he's he's got his five movie going maxims, which I will read to you now. Number one, never read the publicity material, which I think is often good advice. Yes. Number two, wherever possible, see a film in the com company of ordinary human beings, i.e. not critics. Um, number three, try to keep up with documentaries about Swabian transsexuals um, or see everything regardless of budget and height. Uh, number four, whenever possible, pass sentence on a movie the day after it comes out. Otherwise, wait 50 years. And number five, try to avoid the lane technique of summer movie going most of which I think is fairly sound advice. I'm also fascinated by the fact that he's married to Alison Pearson, who is a British newspaper columnist who lately has kind of taken quite a sort of sharp turn to the yes, right. Yes. And I'm sort of imagining what discussions must be like <laughs> on their, over their breakfast table, you know, whether he sort of talks about seeing the latest, you know, 
um, Tarantino or whatever, and she's kind of going on about immigrants or, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But anyway, he's, he's wonderful. And there's, there's always a line that, he, that of his that sticks in my mind. He's, um, his review of The Revenant, you know, there's that, there's that, that bit where, where DiCaprio's character kind of, in, in homage, homage I, I always thought to Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back when he rips open a horse and, and gets into it because it's so cold. But I thought kind of, these things smelled bad on the outside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Lane, but Lane, Lane says something like, he, he does what anyone in the situation would do, he checks into a horse. <laughs> I couldn't think of anyone who would come up with a line like that to describe that particular scene, which I thought was wonderful. So, yeah, he's just really funny. He's really classy. He's yeah, I'm just glad he exists. And uh, yeah, long may he do so. I remember a line of his from the um, Scarlet Letter, the Gary Oldman, Demi Moore. Oh, yeah. Quite, quite, quite sharply forgotten film uh, where he talks about them doing um, horizontal square dancing. <laughs> so how he describes them having sex and yeah he's he has, he's just got these turns of phrases that you he's actually one of those reviewers that's so good at writing and so funny that i get quite angry when i disagree with him about a film yes because i'm yeah. like no that's not fair you're that's and sometimes, well often with him you feel like the film is almost irrelevant <laughs> it's yeah. basically just him showing off what a great writer he is but luckily he's a great writer so i forgive him for that yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, thanks so much for the for for joining me on on the podcast. You're welcome. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, it's been I'm easy. Gonna, I, I'll been cut easy it. bleasy. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm not. No, I'm gonna cut it after because you know, I've got to get easy bleasy in. <laughs> So that's what we thought about um, Quentin Tarantino's novel of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Thanks go to my guests, Ed Potton and Damon Wise, Damo, as we were calling him all the way through. Thanks also go to Elliot Atkins as ever for the music, Ali Harwood for the art. And until the next episode, please take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.